Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delves into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. Joining me this week after quite a long break is Chris Haig. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. It's been like two or three months since I've been on here, um, which is my own fault for chronic e- exhaustion. So, <laughs> And, and let's, let's be right, the last time I also appeared on, you did also make a rap out of my voice. To which I did then send you, send you like 10 Facebook messages in a row going like, Amy, what is this? It's both awful and the best thing I've ever heard. So, yeah, yeah, it was it and, was pretty awful, but brilliant at the same time. <laughs> well, I've only just found out because I was on a chat with um, uh, Andy Brooker about uh, this a podcast coming up that's about Fringe and I'm on a couple of episodes and we were chatting for ages and ages and I mentioned Eccentric Earth and he went, oh, I didn't know you were on that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm on like a bunch of episodes. Which ones are you on? Went on the Eccentric Earth website. I didn't realise there was a 20-minute bonus chat of all the shit that you and I talked about, including Scarlett Johansson, why she's secretly the worst. So, yeah, I did I, I did not know that was a thing because I haven't been keeping up with my podcasts. Oh, you let, so you just let everyone around. down. <laughs> Yeah, well, after finishing my master's, I was that mentally, physically, and kind of, you know, spiritually drained. I've only just started to get back into the swing of it. But no, I was there just going like, oh my god, we literally talked for 20 minutes about the stuff that is not related to this podcast at all. That's yeah. my ability to, to kind of <laughs> run with a non-sequitur. I see a tangent and I just run down it and I'm like, this is about bad representation in the media. Yeah, but it makes for for good bonus content, so it's all good. It, it, it does, but then the horse is like racing after me, like trying to contribute, but also kind of go, nope, get back to the topic. No, get back to the topic. I'm like, right, okay, fair enough. Oh, well, I'll, I'll no, try and keep a, a tighter rein on you then from now on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it also, it's it's great to be back. So Yeah, good. It's it's good to have you on. It's oh. It's been weird not having you around because you're one of the... The more common Best guests, you know, you're, you're, you're here quite a lot, <laughs> and we've done some really good episodes, so it's like, God, I haven't had we a have. in ages. I tried explaining it to my dad last night, and it was, it was like, so what is it? I'm like, okay, so it's like a history podcast, but it's like stories you probably haven't heard of, or ones that don't get talked about a lot. And he went, right, okay, so what kind of stuff? And I went, well, I've gone from doing, like, cryptids to... <laughs> The most insane footballer who ever lived to nineteenth century reformers who married re- into religion. I think Elizabeth Fry, um, and then uh, massacres and serial killers and all that sort of thing. And I was just like, so it's a it's a mixed bag, really. Yeah, I try and put a little something for everyone in here. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know, if you like history and you're just like, I don't know what to go. Chances are you'll find something here. So that's pretty good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I like that I'm catering for a lot of people. And, you know, different demographics and everything. Because there'll be plenty of people who will come in for like, oh, I don't like really dark stuff. I don't really like, you know, I, I want something a bit funnier or something a bit sillier, that sort of thing. And then you've got people like me who love listening to like the true crime and like the supernatural, scary kind of dark stuff. Where I'm like, yeah, give me all those, you know, those dark cryptid monsters. <laughs> You know, or people who wear other people's skin as like you know a vest or something. <laughs> it, it's it's. I was gonna say good to know your tastes. A little bit scary, um, but but good, I suppose. <laughs> I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say just before we start, like that isn't okay. I have to, I'm not a serial killer, <laughs> which is the same thing a serial killer would say. But, yeah, uh, it's um, like I it's just... kind of like the people go. I'm not a racist. Normally, are the ones who are racist. That I'm not a serial killer. It's like really. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. <laughs> Differentiation. 
People who, and I hate people who do this, who are like, I'm not racist, but. That's the thing. If I was to go, I'm not a serial killer, but, then be worried. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a serial you killer, know. but if I could get away with it, I'd wear your yeah. face. <laughs> well, I mean, talk about tangents and everything, but it is literally like, because at the time of recording, there's just been a case on where it's two bakers have been allowed to not make a gay cake. Yeah, and it's the equivalent of going like, "I'm not homophobic," but the idea of making a gay cake makes me physically sick. And it's like that's the definition of homophobic. You absolute tool made of shit. Yeah, but they loophole it. It's like we didn't refuse the gay person; we refused to pr- to to bake a cake with a political message we disagree with, and that's our Ugh. political right. And it's like you're a dick. <laughs> you you loophole yeah. your way. What what, what they want to do discrimination. is go. Go and have a bunch of them who are like political. So it's like you know the Green Party girls, Labour girls. They say, "Would you mind doing a cake for like a Green?" Like that sort of. And then they can catch them in a line. But like, ha, you're just regular flavour homophobes with your <laughs> shit cake. I bet it is shit cake as well. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I hope so because it's like it's like supporting companies, and it's like if the food tastes good, and then you're like, oh shit. <laughs> it's like you're complicit in it then. You're like, God damn it. Ah. Anyway, yes, the show. <laughs> yes. Um, um, well, before the episode, I was saying this is, it's going to be a little new to me because it's been quite a while since I researched this because this is one that I've had sitting there waiting since before I recorded episode one. Oh, okay. So hmm. it's it's a story I, I've known about for a while and, and find fascinating. But yeah, I've it's it's been... 10 months since i've read through these uh th- these notes so okay hopefully it's not gonna be too bad <laughs> i'm just intrigued now yeah well i'm a little worried because you're into your true crime it's like mm, you might know this one <laughs> but it's quite good okay so let's let's do our story hey it's hansi from the squeak project and we're having our first squeak on on saturday december 1st at the lyric hall in new haven connecticut we're going to be celebrating women and fandom with performances by Tea Time for Mad Girls, Cat Smith, a film festival, cosplay guests, vendors, and then we're wrapping up the evening with a meetup and nerd karaoke at the bar. Get your tickets at filmfreeway.com forward slash squeakon. In the early 1900s... I know it. This... <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's only because you said you might know it. Uh, true, but if sorry, you do sorry, know God. it, the next word could give it away. <laughs> in the early 1900s, okay. So, in the early 1900s, Villisca, Iowa, a Midwestern town of 2,500 people, was flourishing. Businesses lined the streets and several dozen, several dozen trains pulled into the depot on a daily basis. According to D.N. Smith, a Chicago... Burlington Quincy Railroad employee, Velisca meant pretty place or pleasant view. Okay. Is the name Velisca ringing any bells? Velisca. Yeah. Velisca, Velisca, Velisca. Oh, I've heard it. I cannot tell you a thing about it. That's good. If you can't tell me anything about it, it means the format is not broken yet. <laughs> it might come I'm back to say, you during what, it. What would, what would happen if I just went, oh yeah, I know about it. Is it just you read it out and then it's like I make extra I'd, commentary. Yeah, I'd still read it because I've got no backup. So <laughs> either that, or it's, it's been like, a really short. I'll come back like, in two well, days. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So in 1912, the town built the only publicly funded armory in the state of Iowa. The company housed there participated in the 1916 Mexican expansion, World War One and World War Two, as well as the Korean and Vietnam Wars. Uh, during World War II, Montgomery County lost more men per capita than any other county in the United States. So, lots of military history in Villisca. Okay, yeah. Josiah Moore was one of the prominent businessmen in Villisca and was well respected within the local community. On December 6th, 1899, Josiah married Sarah Montgomery and the two of them moved into a house on 2nd Street where they had four children, Herman Montgomery Moore... Mary Catherine Moore, Arthur Boyd Moore, and Paul Vernon Moore. 
On the night of June 9th, 1912, Catherine Moore invited two of her friends, Ina and Lena Stillinger, to spend the night. That evening, the visiting girls and the Moore family attended the Presbyterian Church where they participated in the Children's Day programme, which Sarah Moore had coordinated. After the program ended at 9.30pm, the Moores and the Stillinger sisters walked to the Moores' house, arriving between 9.45 and 10pm. At 7am the next day, Mary Peckham, the Moores' neighbour, became concerned when she noticed the Moore family had not come out to do their morning chores. Peckham knocked on the door. When no one answered, she tried to open the door and discovered that it was locked. Which I guess is a sign of the times people would leave their doors open throughout the night. To find it I mean, locked in the morning, shocking. <laughs> okay. I'm still real. I, oh, I've heard this. I heard this. I don't know where the hell I've heard this before. Oh, you're starting to remember it. <laughs> I think I know what happens next. Okay. Okay. Sorry, go on. No, no, that's, that's fine. Um, she let the chickens out and called Ross Moore, Josiah's brother. Arriving at the home, Ross received no response when he knocked on the door and shouted. He unlocked the front door with a copy of the key he had, and while Peckham stood on the porch, he went into the parlour and opened the guest bedroom door, where he found Ina and Lena Stillinger's bodies on the bed. Moore immediately told Peckham to call Hank Horton, Velisca's primary peace officer, who arrived shortly after. Horton's search of the house revealed the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls had been bludgeoned to death. The murder weapon, an axe belonging to Josiah, was found in the guest bedroom where the Stillinger sisters were found. Oh, yeah. Now I know it. Mm-hmm. This was on, and it's a little bit of a shameless plug for another podcast, it was on an episode of Law. Ah, okay. That's where I know it. It's one of the early ones. I think it's only like the first maybe kind of dozen episodes or so, but it's like... I knew I knew this from somewhere. It's like a um like a, a family extinction and it's a bit like um it reminded me a lot of uh In Cold Blood, you know, Truman Capote. Mm. Which is based on a real thing and it isn't this, but it's yeah, it's it, when you start talking about the cuz it's not just the family, it's the two girls who are like from a different just neighbor neighbors or something. Yeah. Or they're friends or they came around to stay for some reason. Yeah, I I didn't realise this was on law because I knew you listened to that. I think I gave up on law before I got to this point. <laughs> ah, no, see, I, yeah, we, we won't get into podcast listening techniques and stuff, <laughs> but yeah. Um, no, I, oh, I was just thinking, I knew I'd listen to it from somewhere, and I was like, ah. I God knows I don't know all the details and everything, but yeah, I remember this one. Okay, well, we'll see if I can throw any more info into this that you might not. Having oh in yeah, life. yeah, yeah. I'm not. I, <laughs> I'm not there with like kind of like. Oh yes, I think you'll find it was a you know da 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 da, and these were the suspects or anything. I just remember because it's just a horrible. Yeah, I, th- like, that detail of them all being found like that. It's it's know, one that sticks out. It's quite I mean, a famous got, one. You've got six dead children. Yeah, yeah. That that'll uh, make it noteworthy. It'll it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll it'll stick in the gullet. That's for sure. Oh. So. Uh, When called to the scene, doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5am. Two spent cigarettes in the attic suggested that the killer or killers patiently waited until the Moore family and the Stillingers were asleep. The killer or killers began in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah Moore were sleeping. Josiah received more blows from the axe than any other victim. His face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were missing. Oh god, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. The killer used the blade of the axe on Josiah while using the blunt end on the on his wife. Uh, okay. I'm not sure which of those two ways I'd want to go. I'm, it's okay. like... <laughs> I'm, I, I'm being really thick here. In terms of the axe and everything, I presume he means he literally just turned it round, not that he used the handle. Yeah, he, he used the... Oh, thank God. Because I had a mental image of him like, holding the, the axe in his hand and trying to, like ineffectually beat them to death with a hammer with the um the handle and I was like, that's not gonna kill anyone. You know, no. I'm not I'm not a serial killer, but um <laughs> even I you know would be like, yeah no, you're not gonna kill anyone with like a handle or anything. No, huh. I think I'm not sure if it happened at the same time where it's like blade into him, swing it out of him, hit her with the the butt, 
swing the blade back around kind of that's a lot of momentum yeah it's i but... mean because like you can't say i am like <laughs> i'm just like going like uh with my arm trying to like <laughs> no i mean if we're picking i'd rather get the blade because i get a guess like i mean hopefully it wasn't awake or anything and hopefully my, it'll be a bit quicker yeah you'd imagine it would be the better way to go yeah because if the axe is sharp enough and he's strong enough it'll just like just like into mm. the brain maybe i don't know so after the killer murdered the two adults he went into the children's rooms and bludgeoned herman catherine boyd and paul in the head before going downstairs no sorry before returning to the master bedroom to inflict more blows on the elder moors knocking over a shoe that had been filled with blood afterward the killer then moved downstairs to the guest bedroom and killed Ina and lena investigators believe that all the victims except for lena sillinger had been asleep when they were murdered they thought that she was awake and tried to fight back as she was found lying crosswise on the bed with defensive wounds on her arm. Lena's nightgown was pushed up to her waist and she was wearing no undergarments, leading to law enforcement speculation that the killer sexually molested her or attempted to do so. Ah, uh, okay. So the county coroner, Dr. Lindquist, arrived at the scene of the crime at approximately 9am, several hours after the discovery of the murders. After viewing the crime scene himself, he later met with John Henry Horton, the night watchman, and Sheriff Oren Jackson to review the information they had collected. Although Linquist called the members of the coroner's jury together in the late afternoon, it was several hours later before they actually entered the Moore home to view the bodies, and after 10pm before he and County Attorney Ratcliffe finally gave permission to the undertaker to remove them. The fire station had been set up as a temporary morgue as it was close to 2am before all the bodies had been transported. And because the town didn't have a morgue big enough for eight bodies because it's a very small town. Yeah. On the 11th of June, the coroner's jury convened for an inquest. A A number of witnesses were called to testify. The first person was called Mary Packham, the neighbor. Mrs. Packham testified that she lived directly next door to the Moors and had seen them before they left for church on Sunday evening. She, she had, however, gone to bed at approximately 8pm and did not see the family return. According to her testimony, Mrs. Packham heard absolutely no noise from the house during the night. Mm. The second witness to be called was Ed Seeley, an employee of Josiah's. Seeley testified that on Monday morning, June 10th, he had opened the store and received a, tele- a telephone call from Ross, Josiah's brother. Ross asked him if he knew where Josiah was and Seely called the Elder Moore home to see if he had gone visiting his father. Josiah's mother told him that he had not been there. Seely then received a call from Mary Packham who asked if Josiah was at the store and told him that the livestock needed tending. Seely then left the store and went to the Moore home where he fed the horses. After returning to the store he received another call telling him to bring the marshal to the house as quick as possible. According to Seeley's testimony, Ross and Packham had entered the house before he returned with the marshal. When they arrived, they all re-entered together. After seeing blood on the bed in the downstairs bedroom, he left the house. While waiting outside the home, Seeley was met by Harry Moore. According to Seeley, when Marshal Horton came out of the house, his comment was, there's somebody dead, or they've been killed in every bed. When questioned at the inquest about possible enemies of Joe Moore, Seeley admitted that Joe had mentioned a brother-in-law that could have been a threat. He says, I got a brother-in-law that I don't like me. Said he would get even with me some time, he said. The brother-in-law that Moore was referring to was Sam Moyer. Seeley denied having any other information regarding anyone who would have wanted to murder the Moore family and was excused. The third witness to appear at the inquest was Dr. Clark Cooper, the first physician to arrive at the scene of the crime. Cooper testified that he had called the Moors home at approximately 8.15 on the morning of June 10th when Hank Horton entered his office and said, come with me. According to Cooper, when he asked Horton why, Horton appeared extremely frightened and replied, Joe Moore and all his family were murdered in bed. Cooper accompanied Horton to the house, waited outside while Horton retrieved the the keys from Packham, and when returned, Cooper, Horton, Dr. Houghton and the Presbyterian minister, Mr. Ewing, entered the home together. According to Cooper, the group stepped into the dining room and then in the first floor bedroom. All we could see was an arm of someone sticking out from under the edge of the covers with the blood on the pillows. 
I went over and lifted the covers and saw what I suppose was a body, some entire stranger and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognise them at all, neither did any of the people, the others that were there with me, and we, ne and we merely saw that they were dead and that they were only two in the bed and then we stopped out into the and then we stepped out into the parlour. <sighs> when they reached the top of the stairs, a lamp sat on the floor. Horton moved the lamp out of their way and they continued into the bedroom. He said, the lamp was sitting at the foot of the bed in our way, so Hank set it to one side to allow us to pass, and Hank was ahead of me and he walked around the corner to the left-hand side of the bed and turned the covers back and said, here is Joe, and I merely glanced over there the first time as I came up and saw that Mr. and Mrs. Moore were both dead, and I immediately went to the south room and left the other people with them. I do not know whether any of them came with me to the south room, but I left plenty of them in the north room while I went to the south room there we began to count the children. When questioned about the condition of the bodies, Cooper admitted that he did not touch the corpses. He said, the bedding was pretty stiff at the head and the blood and the brains were on the pillow. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, it's just the way the sentence is written because it's a direct quote. It's a bit... Jumbled. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, the bedding was pretty stiff at the head and the blood and brains on the pillow were, had contracted as it does when killed, will dry so that it was perfect so it was perfect jelly at the time, and blood clots were dry. He estimated that when the bodies were found, the Moors and the Stillingers had been dead for at least five to six hours. Cooper testified that he smelt no unusual antiseptic odour in the house, and it seemed that the faces of the victims had been covered after they were murdered. So that's the information gathered at the inquest, so no real yeah. leads so far. Well, no, I mean, I'm finding it hard to be funny with this because I can't really be like, hey, everybody's dead. You, Guess you what? don't have to be funny. It's not a prerequisite. <laughs> oh, for I these know. Episodes. Oh, I know. But usually I can find some kind of light. Well, well, not with some of the stuff you put me on, but I was just like, oh, my God. Like the descriptions. I can't. I'm just what? Because obviously it's horrible what they went through, but what the kind of discoverers mm. went through, you know, finding eight dead people, six of them children under the age of 12 especially at a time where you know we our culture today we're even though this would be horrific we're kind of desensitized in the sense of we hear stories like this you know there's stuff in films and tv and books yeah back then this is a small town this is so alien to the police the doctors no one would have anything to prepare them for this yeah no yeah exactly it's yeah, you know, we are a bit desensitized towards it. We can see, you know, you can see stuff like they see, you know, Messiah or Whitechapel or any kind of, you know, kind of gruesome murder show. Mm. And it just, it's just, I mean, I don't know if it's, it's, um, how can I phrase it? I don't ever think we should get so desensitized towards it because this stuff does happen in real life. You know, there are these kind of, unfortunate kind of extinction event sometimes it's you know self-induced sometimes it's murder suicide um and i think we should always keep our kind of horror and our upset about it but it just imagine what it was like back then you know you're right in in the in the context of it you have people who it's a sm small presumably nice quiet rural town and something horrific has happened. It's not just, oh, eight people have died because of, you know, disease or, you know, there was a horrible fire or anything. It's like, no, no, these people were deliberately and brutally murdered. Yeah. It's like and at it's this just... time, there's only like two to three thousand people living in the town. So like people like the, the, the doctor and the coroner, the police officer, mm. they kind of know everyone. And, you know, well, that's it's... the thing, you know, they get called out. It's like, you know. People, you know, it's like your friends or, you know, God forbid your family or just, you know, you don't need to formally identify anyone because, you know, oh, that's just Herb. He's always lived here. Or that's, you know, Josiah. Mm. You know, they've lived here for God knows how long. I just, it, it, it's just sad, you know, and that little bit about um, Lena, I think she was the oldest child at 12 or something. Um, you know, the fact that she apparently, you know, defended herself and uh, she was, you know, potentially sexually assaulted before or after she died. Mm. That's just... I know in a... And I saw this argument. It's 
as horrible as sexual assault is, if you're murdered, that's it. I, yeah. I, I I heard this argument and I don't I, I sort of agree with it, but I've never gone through it, so I can't comment on it. But um, the idea that you know people use sexual assault and rape as like the the be all and end all worst thing that could ever happen to you know a woman, it's like well no, because she'll she'll still endure, she'll survive, and all that sort of thing. Or a guy if he gets sexually assaulted, but murder that's it, that's the end, that's you're taking their life away. That's the you know the greatest horror and so it's just having them combined potentially because mm. it I, I, I mean it might say it later on but um if it doesn't confirm it that this did happen then it's just uh it's just it's it's just sad it's just a sad horror I feel bad now. This big break, and this is what I give you when you come back. You won't be back again. <laughs> oh, listen, it's absolutely... I mean, to be fair, though, if it's something this serious, you won't dare make a comedy rap out of it. So True, true. It would be <laughs> well, extremely tasteless to do it at this point. Yes. <laughs> but, but, like, guess what? It's murder. Just, no, no, this isn't. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, God knows there are some podcasts out there that do it really well, that do all this kind of dark stuff in a very comedic tone but it's like oh yeah i don't feel great about yeah i think i think you've got to be probably a professional comedian to be able to pull it off and i i am definitely not able to pull that kind of comedy off (laughs) well let's be fair it's also a very niche thing being like hmm how do you make a family massacre into a punchline you know it's a hell of a I, I don't even know if it's like a skill you have to like be made of a certain kind of stuff to do it and yeah I'm I'm certainly not anyway yes during the weeks that followed life in the small town changed drastically residents of the town reinforced locks openly carried weapons and huddled together while sleeping newspaper reporters and private detectives flooded the streets accusations rumors and suspicions Suspicion ran rampant among friends and families. Bloodhounds were brought in, law enforcement agencies from neighbouring counties and states joined forces, and hundreds of interviews filled thousands of pages. Every transient and otherwise unaccounted for stranger was a suspect in the murders. One such suspect was a man named Andy Sawyer. No real evidence linked Sawyer to the crime, but his name came up often in a grand jury testimonies. According to Thomas Dyer of Burlington, Iowa, a bridge foreman and pile driver for the Burlington Railroad, Andy Dyer approached his crew in Creston at 6am on the morning of the murders were discovered. Sawyer was clean-shaven and wearing a brown suit when he arrived. His shoes were covered in mud and his pants were wet nearly to the knees. He asked for employment and, as Dyer needed an extra man, he was given a job on the spot. Dyer testified that later the evening, when the crew reached Fontenelle in Iowa, Sawyer purchased a newspaper and went off by himself to read it. The paper carried a front page account of the Velisca murders and according to Dyer, Sawyer was much interested in it. Dyer's crew complained that Sawyer slept with his clothes on and was anxious to be by himself. They were also uneasy that Sawyer slept with an axe next to him and often talked of the Velisca murders whether and whether the killer had been apprehended or not. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... Some of that is guaranteed a bit dodgy, you know, but <laughs> yeah. certain things like he was interested in the murders on the front page of the paper. It's like, I imagine a lot of people were. Yeah. it's. <laughs> I mean, particularly in the small town and everything, it's like, you know. Yeah, that that would be interesting front page news today, let alone over a hundred years oh, ago. it'd be all they'd talk about for years. Mm. You know, so yeah, not a not a massive surprise, I guess. So he reportedly told Dyer that he had been in Velisca that Sunday night and had heard of the murders. Afraid of being taken as a suspect, he had left and gone to Creston. Dyer was suspicious and turned him over to the sheriff on June 18th, 1912. Dyer later testified that prior to the sheriff's arrival, he walked up behind Sawyer. He was rubbing his head with both hands and suddenly jumped up and said to himself, I will cut your goddamn heads off. At the same time, he made striking motions with the axe and began hitting the piles in front of him. So, that was weird. Yeah, <laughs> just just a bit, yeah. Dyer's son, J.R., 
testified that one day, as the crew moved through Velisca, Sawyer told him he would show JR where the man who had killed the Moore family got out of town. He said that the man that did the job jumped over a manure box, which he pointed out about a block and a half away, and then showed him where he crossed the railroad track. JR said there were footprints in the soggy ground north of the embankment. Sawyer told JR to look on the other side of the car and said he would show him the old tree where the murderer stepped into the creek. According to J.R. Dyer, he looked over and saw a tree on the tracks about four blocks away. Sawyer was dismissed as a suspect in the case when officials learned that he could prove he had been in Acelia in Iowa the night of the murders. He had been arrested for vagrancy there, and the Acelia sheriff recalled putting him on a train to send him away at approximately 11pm that evening. Oh, okay. So, so, kind of rules him out then. Yeah. It sounds like it sounds like he has some mental health issues and has become fascinated with the case and, and wants to claim credit, but not yeah. him. Although I love the bang up police work in the other town where it's like, I'm gonna arrest you, I'll just put you on a train, you can be someone else's problem. <laughs> I mean, that's one way to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just Rambo who just wants the vagrant out of his town. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, Reverend George Kelly was an English-born travelling minister in town on the night of the murders. Kelly was described as peculiar, reportedly having suffered a mental breakdown and as an adolescent. As an adult, he was accused of peeping and several times asking young women and girls to pose naked for him. On the 8th of Ooh. June... Ni- oh, sorry. Nothing, it was just because it reminds me of that film, The Night of the Hunter. Have you ever seen it? No, the name rings a bell, though. So it's this uh, it's this fifties film that's quite dark for a nineteen fifties film about a um, a minister who becomes a serial killer. Okay. And so he, the plot is driving through town, and he finds uh, a recently widowed woman, um, and kind of seduces her to get him to marry him and all that sort of thing. Kills her, and then plans to kill the two children because. the, re- the the children's father, the woman's first husband, was a bank robber who left a bunch of money, and he's mm. been trying to find the money and all that sort of thing. So the kids run away with the money, and it just reminded me of that, just like this evil, sinister priest. He, he, he might not have done it, I just it reminded me then. Mm. No, that yeah. sounds, sounds interesting. I've just had a quick Google search, and the film looks vaguely familiar. I must have seen it on a few of those, like, great horror films yeah. you must see kind of lists and stuff well it it popped in because i have a habit of trying to like when when it gets dark and i've mentioned this on every podcast i've ever been on when it gets <laughs> cold i'm like when it gets cold my power grows i'm not someone born for the summer i'm someone who when it starts to get to like cold and like autumn and winter i'm there like yes i'm like <laughs> i like bathe in it other people are like oh it's cold and i'm like yes i lo-, you know so it basically means i have an opportunity to sit in and watch um kind of old movies and that sort of thing and i got night of the hunter it was either last year or the year before because it was said oh it's a really good black and white thriller that is very dark for the fact mm. it came out in 1955 or something so it's it's worth a watch if anyone's ever seen it if anyone out there likes the idea of like a sinister Mid fifties thriller with some great performances in it. I would very strongly like recommend it. Mm, cool. I think I'll check yeah. that one out. Oh, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. So on the eighth of June, nineteen twelve, he came to Villisca to te- to teach at the children's day service, which the Moore family attended on June the ninth. He left town between five a.m. and five thirty on June tenth, hours before the bodies were discovered. In the weeks that followed, he displayed a fascination with the case and wrote many letters to the police, investigators and family of the deceased. This aroused suspicion and a private investigator wrote back to Reverend Kelly, asking him for details that the minister might know about the murders. Kelly replied with great detail, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly witnessed the murderers. His known mental illness made authorities question whether he knew the details because of having committed the murders or was imagining the incident. Okay. So in 1914, two years after the murders, Kelly was arrested for sending obscene materials through the mail. Uh, He was sexually harassing a woman who applied for a job as his secretary. He was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the National Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C., 
where investigators speculated again that Kelly could have been the murderer of the Moore family. In 1917, he was arrested for the Villisca murders. Police obtained a confession from him, however, it followed many hours of interrogation, and Kelly later recanted. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. Hmm. See, I'm immediately suspicious of any confession after yeah. 10 plus hours of police interrogation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, the guy was, like, creepy as shit, but... <sighs> interrogations after a certain amount of time it's just because you just want them to go and let's be honest what it was like a hundred years ago mm-hmm. they probably would have been like listen if you don't confess we're gonna just you know beat the shit out of you we're gonna like break your fingers or do do god knows what yeah there, there was no recording devices in the, the no things to make sure no, there was there nothing was, dodgy going on no there was no no body cams unfortunately or no kind of magic good they do in yeah. the modern day um, not touching on that, that's a modern history <laughs> thing um, but yeah, that kind of you know, 10 hours of being cajoled and harassed and all that sort of thing so it's just like, yeah, very suspicious, same as you So, Frank Fernando Jones was a Velisca resident and Iowa State Senator Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones at his implement store for many years before leaving to open his own store Moore reportedly took business away from Jones, including a very successful John Deere dealership. Moore was rumoured to have had a sexual affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, leading to a number of local residents believing that Jones committed the murders as an act of revenge. Fairly good reasons to want revenge, I think. You know, it's it lines up. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Stole, stole business, slept with my daughter-in-law. It's uh, you know, people have killed for less. They have, they certainly have. <laughs> Unfortunately, no evidence in Jones's involvement in the murder could be found. However, another theory was that Senator Jones hired William Blackie Mansfield to murder the Moore family. Oh. It was believed that Mansfield was a serial killer because he murdered his wife, infant child, father and mother-in-law with an axe two years after the Velisca crimes. Jesus. He is believed to have committed the axe murders in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Velisca crimes. He was also suspected in the double homicide of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Illinois. Each crime site was accessible by train and all murders were carried out in virtually the same manner. Mansfield was was released after a special grand jury of Montgomery County refused to indict him on grounds that his alibi checked out. Nine months before the murders in Villisca, a similar case of axe murders occurred in Colorado Springs. Two axe murder cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas and Paola, Kansas. These cases were similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person. Other murders reported as possibly being linked to these crimes include the numerous unsolved axe cases along the Southern Pacific Railroads from 1911 to 1912, and the unsolved axemen of New Orleans as well as several other such murders during the time. So axe murders were actually quite rampant during this period. Ah, uh, um, yeah. yeah. I mean... <laughs> <sighs> I, I don't know, have you ever heard of the the um, Axemen of New Orleans? Uh, kind of, through American Horror Story. Right, okay, I've not seen... So, um, in the third series, which is set in New Orleans... Is that the Coven um, one? That's Coven, yeah. So yeah. there's a little flashback to 19... Whatever era, is it 20s? Uh, 19-teens, I think. Okay. So, yeah. so the 1910s, that sort of thing. So, yeah, as far as I understand, the Axeman of New Orleans was a guy who threatened New Orleans by saying... Um, Whichever house doesn't have um, a jazz band playing in it uh, mm-hmm. will feel by axe, which was apparently a synonym for um, uh, a, an instrument of some kind. So axe was like a bit of a pun. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was a little bit like the Zodiac Killer in that he randomly attacked couples, I think. Um, some of who survived, some of who both died, some of whom were like kind of half and half um, and in American Horror Story it's basically a, an, an older group of 
witches who later stop him in his tracks and kind of trap him and kill him and then it's his ghost that is brought back into like the second half of the show as okay. this love interest slash bodyguard for the show's kind of villain in a way she's she's like a sympathetic villain mm. so it's 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 absolutely mad um <laughs> it does sound a bit crazy but cool. yeah it's danny <laughs> it's danny what the hell is his name it's the guy who have you seen wonder woman yes right so it's the guy who plays the german like general Oh, who they yeah. think war is. Dan- Danny Houston. Danny Houston. He plays the Axeman. And it- he's quite good in it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he's like psychotic. <laughs> but he's very charming in a way. So, yeah. No. Um, and then I think I remember, because I read a- quite a lot of books. I think I remember reading a book either last year or the year before, which was basically like a fictional take on the Axeman stories. But I can't tell you anything about it because it wasn't very good. Mm. Yeah, so. But yeah, you know, who knew people were just going around killing with axes a lot in that time yeah. period. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he he's one that I've seen come up quite a few times as possibly being the um, mm. Liska murderer. I mean, I won't be surprised. I mean, isn't there that um, that book? It got like it got like traction a little while ago because they said it was like that. Um, oh god, I mean, really bad with names here. But there was a book that came out recently by Michelle McNamara, who passed away last year, and who was married to Patton Oswalt, mm. and it helped convict some murderer. And they said, "Oh, it's a bit like this other book, which I think is called The Man from the Train." I don't know who wrote it, but I think that tries to tie in a lot of stuff like the um, the. What what murders are these again? What are they called? Uh, the Velisca. Velisca. Mm. The Velisca murders and the kind of a lot of other saying, oh, it was like some big serial killer who did it. Yeah, because I think if they looked at certain ones, it was almost like travelling across America or close yeah. to the trains and, yeah. Kind of like pat the same patterns but occurring in different states and because obviously 100 years ago they weren't really talking to each other back then. Mm. And comparing, they didn't have databases, they didn't have... You know, unless it was something major, then I can easily see why they didn't kind of connect the dots, but yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It is. Okay, so the murders in Colorado Spring, um, shortly before the Valeska murders, uh, was closely related in execution to those of the Moore House. Nine months before the Valeska murders, H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, Mrs. and Mrs. A.J. Burnham were found dead in Colorado Springs, murdered by axes. The Colorado Springs police found it difficult to believe that the same person could perpetrate a similar crime in a city. As in the Velisca murders, bedsheets were used to cover the windows to prevent passers-by from looking in. At the Moore House, the murderer hung aprons and skirts to cover the windows. As in the murders in Velisca, the murderer in Colorado Springs wiped the blood off his axe and covered the heads of the victims with bedclothes. So, a bit more kind of feeding into the idea that it's connected. Yeah. Mansfield was also the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency in Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson, who suggested that he was a a cocaine-addicted serial killer. According to contemporary news sources, Wilkerson believed that Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, father-in-law and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois, on the 5th of July, 1914. The axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Velisca murders, and the murders of Janie Peterson and Janie Miller in Aurora, Illinois. According to Wilkinson's investigation, all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner, indicating that the same man probably committed them. Wilkinson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of the differing crime scenes on the night of the murders, In each murder, the victim was hacked to death with an axe, and the mirrors in the homes were covered. A burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed, and the basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. Oh. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield, who knew knew his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison in Leavenworth. 
However, Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916 and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County in Kansas City. Unfortunately, payroll records provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. Ah. As such, he was released for a lack of evidence and later won a lawsuit against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225. That was at the time. What is that now? I don't know. Maybe about seven, eight grand, maybe? Maybe a bit more? That would be $51,400. Jesus! Yeah. (laughs) I was there going like, maybe six. No, (laughs) 51 grand. Yep, just shy of hell? I'd sue someone for that if they said I was a murderer. <laughs> I, I'd sue them for 20 quid if they said I was a murderer and I wasn't, but yeah, 50 I mean, if, 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 if you could defend yourself, you'd be like, excuse me, I am not a murderer, you said I was. <laughs> 20 quid. Yeah, that's... Bloody hell. <sighs> Imagine if he was the murderer. Well, he can't because he's got an alibi. Or does he? Well, um, does he have an alibi? You know, he it's payroll records. Records mm. can be, fa- you know, if it's not witnesses. True. No. You know, it's not like the other guy who was arrested in a different town that night. That's pretty solid alibi. Mm. I'm not saying he was, but... No, 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 no. It's just... <laughs> so, yeah, he, he got a good payday out of that. That's pretty solid, yeah. Nice, so... you know. Wilkerson believes that pressure from Jones, uh, the senator, resulted not only in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly. So he thinks there's... He's determined that it's Mansfield working for Jones and that his release and then Kelly being the prime suspect was all a smokescreen part of the plan. Right, okay. Which... Does a senator have that kind of pull? Probably. Uh, I mean, back then... Yeah, probably, you know, not being checked on as much. Mm. You know? R.H. Thorpe, a restaurant owner from Shenandoah, Iowa, identified Mansfield as the man he saw the morning of the Villisca murders boarding a train at Clarinda. This man said he had walked from Villisca. If proven to be true, this testimony would disprove Mansfield's alibi. Furthermore, it was reported that Mrs. Vinia Tompkins of Marshalltown was on her way to testify that she heard three men in the woods plotting the murder of the Moore family a short time before the killings. Henry Lee Moore was a suspect was a suspected serial killer, however he was not related to the Moore family, who was convinced that the who was convicted of the murder of his mother and grandmother several months after the murders in Villisca. His weapon of choice was an axe. Before and after the murders in Villisca, the very similar axe murders of his mother and grandmother were committed and all of the cases showed striking similarities, leading to strong suspicion that some or all of the crimes committed by the axe murdering serial killer were committed by... Oh, sorry. This is what happens when I don't check this for 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that sentence got away. So yeah, they, they think this other person could be the killer as well. Um, but they found no evidence directly linking him to it. Um, Despite several suspects, no one was ever charged with the murders and the killer was never apprehended. Mm. Basically, the house is is still around now as well. Oh. oh. Yeah. um, So it went through several owners over the following decades and kind of fell into disrepair, but has been renovated in the mid-90s. And it's kind of been returned to the way it was at the time of the murders and is actually open to the public now and they can go and take tours of the property. One thing that I didn't put in here, which I'm, I'm surprised because I, I knew about this, um, there's a lot of reports that the house is now haunted. I mean, if a place was ever going to be haunted. Yeah. Where eight that. people died? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I know people like visiting that kind of stuff, and in a mo- in a really morbid way, I can understand that. But I, I don't know. Yeah, don't know if I'd be brave enough to kind of go into the house where eight people were brutally murdered. Yeah, it's a bit. Hmm. I don't. I don't know if I'd want to go there because it's one of those things. Even if you don't believe in the supernatural and hauntings and think that it's full of ghosts 
just the general atmosphere there must be there still. Yeah. Because you got to imagine it leaves some sort of residue on the building. Well, they do say that, where it's kind of like a house can absorb the energies or whatever it is you want to call them. But I don't know. Yeah. Cause I did see um, there's a, a show called My Ghost Story. Okay. Which is uh, people come in, give their their own personal accounts of their paranormal experiences and quite often they're accompanied by um any evidence they've collected like photographs audio recordings stuff like mm. that and one episode was the person who lived in what was um what's her name is it mrs packham uh uh oh just bringing it up. oh god the neighbor yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mary Packham. They basically live in Mary Packham's house, the next door house, and they're like caretakers for the Velisca house. And yeah, some of the stuff they reported, they were just like, yeah, the house was just full of ghosts. And they'd come over to the next door house as well. And, you know, if, if the guy who lives next door to the house, who said he, he'd never believed in ghosts before, is now like, that place is full of ghosts, there's definitely some air about that house that's not good yeah mm. and yeah screw visiting that <laughs> i i just find it fascinating that th- this is quite a well-known um axe murder case but through looking into it you find out that there's just dozens of axe murders in america at this time it's kind of the tip of the iceberg really mm. you know and it kind of lends a bit more credence to the whole well maybe there was more than one serial killer maybe there was like a group of them maybe it was you know who knows or maybe it was just in the fashion you know yeah two years ago it was pokemon go (laughs) so are you you connecting pokemon go and axe murders (laughs) i mean i'm not saying a thing but (laughs) no it's you know it's the best thing I can compare it to is like when everybody went mad and would, you know, dressed up like fucking clowns and were trying to attack each other, or there's like mm. spates of crime and all that sort of thing. I mean, the one advantage is that historically crime has generally decreased kind of year on year. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, you know, it's never safe or anything, but then again, you and I live in, you know, the Western world and in a fairly safe well looked after country so yeah I just the one out of all of this it's the two kids who weren't in the family that I feel sorry for because if, if they hadn't come over that night yeah you know and they probably thought they were, they were probably friends of the kids and they're like yeah stay the night we'll hang out all that sort of thing and you know what about their poor parents you know the yeah. kids got to stay the night and then it's like there, there was some a while ago. There was um, a case. I can't remember because I don't want to go on too long about it. But there was a um, one where it was a disgruntled ex-husband who killed his wife, his mother-in-law, his daughter, and two of his daughter's friends. Oh, it was something like that. It was absolutely horrific, and it was because he and the wife had um, recently split and mm. all that sort of thing. And it was just, you know, it's obviously horrible for every single person involved. But then it's like the it's like the family friends, you know, they had nothing. It was it's the purest, most sinister kind of description of collateral. Mm. It's just yeah, it just breaks your heart a bit. Yeah, and it's one of those things as well. It's like yeah, I think any parent. Is, is nervous when they let a kid go and stay at their friends and stuff. And it's like, oh, what's the worst that could happen? And then something like this, it's like, it would be bad enough if it happened in your own home and that, but surely they, they'd have to blame themselves and think, yeah. you know, what if we didn't let them? So there's there's all that put on top of it as well. It's, it's horrific for, for those parents too. Uh, yeah. Well, cheers for having me on tonight. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> Oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm fascinated in the darkest way, but then I'm also like, oh, people keep on killing. Yeah, it's one of the things. I I love true crime. Um, mm. It's it's a fascinating area, which I think a lot of people are really drawn to and and fascinated by. But society says you shouldn't really be. You know, it's that whole don't be into killers thing. But 
everyone kind of really is. It's why you have police dramas and documentaries on every channel, but there's just something about this kind of history that is is fascinating in a very grim kind of way. And I think it's because you, you want to understand why these things happen and still happen today, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. True crime, scary. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> uh. This is what this is what happens when Amy gets bored and decides to just throw a dart topic in there, you know, just being like, "Oh, you can have this instead." It's like, "Oh, yay! More people are dead." <laughs> I'll make it up for people with some nice Christmas stories. Yeah, and then like not, not... one really grim Christmas massacre thrown in in the middle just to I, fuck I with them. Gonna, <laughs> I was, was going to say it, but like you know. Oh, here's the story about a town that helped celebrate Christmas in a unique way. And here's a town where everybody was murdered by a guy in a Santa suit. Merry (laughs) Christmas. Do you want to hear about the person who dressed up as Krampus and ate children? (laughs) I don't know if that's actually real. I I was going to (laughs) say, don't joke about that because you know that it'll either be true or you speaking it into the universe, it'll be like some of the... What are your faithful listeners will be like, hmm... If I did dress up like Krampus, because they have like a full, you know, like in Germany and Austria, they have a full Krampus festival. It's mad. Yeah, it looks bizarre and freaky and scary and kind of really cool at the same time. Yeah. Oh, that's the sort of thing I'd go see. Not like a haunted house. Yes, of course I'll go see the I'll go see the parade with the evil devil Santa. Why not? It's for children. (laughs) You know, why not? Um, but yeah, no. Oh, I'll try to give you something less murdery next time. I mean, only only if you have to. <laughs> um, just like, you know, maybe like 20% less murders. Or, you know, maybe no murders of children. That'd be great. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh You've done this for a while since I've done this. I'm like, I don't know what to say now. Oh, and I just realised the poor listeners, they've had one week of... This guy lobotomized children. Second week. This guy rapes children. Third week. This person murdered children. It's like, oh my god, what have I done? <laughs> what what says is that you just saying, listen, don't have kids. Yeah, this is why. Is, I it, is don't this have like kids. your secret co- ultimate <laughs> contraceptive season? Being like, listen, there's no greater contraceptive than realizing that your children will probably die in a fire <laughs> or be bludgeoned to death. You know, it's a bit. Well, it's all kind of like annoying kids on planes is the best contraceptive and i'm like that's accurate fair enough (laughs) (sighs) anyway well it's still been good having you back but if people enjoyed this and want to hear more of you where can they find you and your podcast (laughs) works (laughs) i love that just being like if they want to hear you more talk about like raving conspiracies about murders and i'm like that's only like 40% of my Twitter feed, so thank you. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, so you can... Oh my god. I got into a giggle fight a couple of podcasts ago and it was just not great. I had to physically be stopped. <laughs> oh yeah, listen, it's out at the moment and I'll talk about it in a sec. So uh, You can find me on Twitter at higher underscore boy. I generally talk about stuff I like and it's generally a mixture of pop culture, pop music, um, movies, TV shows... Occasional reblogging of very cute animals and occasional reblogging of uh, travesties that we need to be aware of around the world. Um, I am currently a co-host on two podcasts. I'm a co-host on Good Evening and Alfred Hitchcock podcast, which I'm doing with uh, two of my Canadian mates, uh, Brandon Shea Mutala and Tom Caldwell. Um, the Giggling Fit is episode 22, where I laughed so hard during the end wrap-up credits bit that the uh, Brandon had to say, do you want to come back to it? I went, yeah, just give it, I need two minutes, because they make <laughs> me laugh very hard every episode, to the point where I sometimes have to be, like, vocally restrained. And I have to be like, just stop it, stop it. And I'm like, if you <laughs> stop making me laugh, I'll be fine. Um, and we basically cover Hitchcock movies uh, chronologically and Hitchcock um products in a way so we've covered stuff all the way up until the 1930s so we're currently working our way through um the talkie films uh in the 1930s and we've also covered uh, season one of bates motel uh the other podcast i do is me and my best mate 
And the plat we do a show called North by Nerdwest. Um, it's very periodic when we do it. We do it as and when we can, but it's a great chance for us to hang out, um, catch up, talk about all things nerdy. It usually, like any show I'm on, segues into completely random stuff, not related at all to the episode topic. Um, but it's a great chance to have some fun. We had the summer off because um, we were both really busy. So hopefully we're going to try and get some episodes out uh, before the end of the year. And then I also pop in on lots of other different podcasts like Smorgasbord and uh, there's a Fringe one called Observing the Patent, which is going to be out next year, and Eccentric Earth, which you may have heard of, because you're not, listening not to it. Sounds like I'm a, a weird listener. one full of horrific things. <laughs> if you have, then follow the Instagram because you will find some out every day that you will turn to your colleagues and go, I didn't know so-and-so was born this day. And a conversation starts. So it's really well worth it, even just for that. Nice. I'm glad someone's been enjoying the feed. It's nice to hear the feedback. <laughs> the feedback? Or the feed feedback? The feed feed feedback. <laughs> the fe- I will start laughing. I, really- <laughs> I can't start laughing. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm going to be mature. I'm going to be mature. Okay. Well, as you've kindly already promoted my Instagram <laughs> account, um, yeah, we, we're on Instagram and Twitter. Our handles for both are at eccentric underscore earth. Like Chris said, it's updated with little facts about things that happened that day. Uh, we'll tell you when new shows are coming out. And you can see pictures of our mascot, Gohan the History Bunny, who's really cute. So go follow and, and like those pictures because... He's awesome, and he loves the attention. Um, it's true, he does. You go near him with a camera, he I comes do, running up to like, you. It's Gohan, <laughs> the history bunny. I just have a, it's like anime style. He's like flying through the air, like, Gah! <laughs> I'm going to defeat you with knowledge. Do you want to know what the weirdest serial killer in the world is? Yeah. <laughs> he's a bit anime hero-ish, because I'm pretty sure he teleported earlier. Because <gasps> oh. he got upstairs, and I chased him into one room, and then he was just gone. And then he was in the other room, and he—I didn't see him get past me at all. It's like he had rabbit teleportation. He's a little git. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, you, you can find us there. Um, the podcast itself is on all major podcast providers and YouTube. So follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you like, leave us a review. It doesn't have to be a good one. It's preferable. But any review yeah. would be welcome. Um, you can also find me sometimes guesting on Back to the 80s and Smorgasbord. So go check those out. Both of those hosts, Glenn and Pete, respectively, have been on the show. So they're great people. Go follow them. And I'm also co-host on the DC podcast Justice for All, which falls under the Back to the 80s umbrella. So go check that out if you're a comic book geek and you like your DC comics TV, movies, games, all, all those kind of things. So, yeah, I think that wraps up the wrap-up. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for coming back, Chris. It's been a lot of fun, even though that... <laughs> you were very quiet, didn't say much, and I think I depressed you a little bit. <laughs> the way it should be. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me back, even though you tra- you traumatise me in the most lovely way each time I come. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise less traumatic next time. Oh, you say that. Um, I didn't say completely not traumatic, just less traumatic. <laughs> I know, I know. But you said that after the San Ysidro one, after the McDonald's massacre. And look, here we are. Um, I still don't think that beats... This one beats that. Mm, I Don't get me wrong. It's, yeah, this was okay, horrible, yeah. but the San Ysidro one is the only episode yeah. where I had to stop mid-research to cry. Oh yeah, I wasn't. It's like the, the the research actually broke me, and I had to practice certain parts of it a couple of times to make sure I didn't start crying again during the episode. Mm, so that's fair. if I've not had that reaction, I think we're we're good. <laughs> it's 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 a very dark and sad but accurate barometer, I suppose. Yeah, um, it's the only one which I've ever got so angry at that I've had a full ten minute rant. Uh, and I've had to advertise it being like, hi, there's a 10 minute rant in this from me, unless Amy's edited it out, which is me having a go at gun con- control in America. So if you like it, great. If you don't, 
kind of sucked my dick. So, um, plus, if you listen to that event and still have a problem with gun control, fuck you. Yeah. Oh well, no. Well, no, no, no. If you're still, yeah, yeah, yeah. I misread what you misread what you said. You're like, oh, if you still have a problem with gun control, I thought you were like, oh, if you still have a problem with like, you know. Basically, the other way around, I was like, well, no, that makes sense. No, 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 I'm saying if, if you think you should have guns yeah. and no, gun no, control yeah, no. bad after listening to that event... Yeah, no, no, no. Was it? Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it was, it was basically, I misheard you and then went, what? And then realised, nope, I agree with what you're saying here. You suddenly thought but it's also, I was it's completely also very... opposite. <laughs> I, well, I just kind of thought you were like, oh, 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 this is a... This is a very strange 180 from Miss Walker. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, Amy's taking a turn. Hmm. <laughs> like, okay, clearly we need to end this podcast very quickly. <laughs> right, okay. Well, thank you for, for coming on, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Oh, cheers. All right, bye. Right. Bye. <laughs> that was mad. Bye.